0: It was Walter Martin, the, he was the, actually the cult guru at one point, who said, when people say, I believe in Jesus, then look them straight in the eye and ask, which one? You see, there has always been confusion about who Jesus of Nazareth is. Uh, the, the truth is, you have to do something with Him. As British author H.G. Wells once said, I am a historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. You see, you have to do something with Jesus. Uh, Shalom, Ash, or uh, Ask. Uh, A Polish-American Jewish author said, Jesus Christ is to me the outstanding person. He also, by the way, was not a believer. The outstanding personality of all time, all history. There is no easy middle ground to stroll upon. You either accept Jesus or reject Him. I agree. There can be no safe middle ground. Still further. Now a Christian, the Christian author James Hefley said, it's a long quote, some of you have perhaps heard it, but it bears repeating. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30, and then uh, for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. Never held an office, he never owned a home, he never had a family, he never went to college, he never put his foot inside a big city, he never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying. And that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Such was his human life. He rises from the dead. 19, now... Twenty-wide centuries have come and gone, and today He is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. Here's the part you're probably familiar with. I am within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever were built and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Amen. You see, you must do something with this historical figure named Jesus. The Jews of Jesus' day, both followers and opponents, understood this. They they, they could not ignore him, love him, or despise him. Those were the options. No middle safe ground. After all, many were there when he performed all those miracles healing people of every sickness, every disease. They watched blind eyes um, see, deaf ears hear, mute tongues speak, crippled legs walk, lepers healed, deformed bodies restored. They saw storms calmed, dead raised, demoniacs delivered. These were not your one-of-the-mill mill, mill sleight of hand tricks. These were bona fide miracles. There could be no explaining them away. There could be no denying them. Even his opponents did not try to dismiss them. They were too real with too many witnesses. So instead, they simply attributed his power to Beelzebub, the prince of demons. The demons were there to see this opposition mount from the religious elite, the scribes, the Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law. They watched as Jesus deftly handled their challenges and their accusations. Despite all their best efforts, they could not trap Him. You see, no one spoke with the authority and clarity of this man. You must do something with Jesus. And so, as the opposition continued to mount at one point, Jesus led His followers outside Jewish territory. They traveled north to Gentile country, to Caesarea Philippi at the foot of 9,000-foot Mount Hermon. Even on the way, He continued to do amazing miracles. He healed a Canaanite woman's daughter who had been cruelly demon-possessed. When He arrived in the Decapolis, a huge Gentile crowd gathered, and He healed all who were sick. He even fed the Gentiles with a few loaves and fish, just like he had done with the Gentiles or the Jews outside of Capernaum. And so the disciples were beginning to understand this this kingdom would eventually transcend cultural and, yes, even racial boundaries. And the evidence was becoming overwhelming. You have to do something with Jesus. When they arrived at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked His disciples, who do people say that I am? In other words, what are people doing with me? You see, you've got to do something with them. Let's read the conversation that takes place in Matthew 16, verses 13 and following. It says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Here's their answers. And they said... Some say John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, the question of all the ages, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven." I say, also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I love this particular passage. It is the high point in each of the Synoptic Gospels. Everything is leading up to this high point and then now leads to the cross. It contains the first mention of the church, which Jesus promised to build despite the opposition of hell itself. Jesus actually, in this conversation, asked two questions. Who do people say that I am? And more importantly, who do you say that I am? Again, this is the question not only for the disciples, it is the question, the question for everybody who has ever lived, to include every person that is sitting in this room. Who do you say Jesus is? Well, as to the first question, let's begin with some wrong answers. Well, some are saying you're John the Baptist. Why? Well, both uh, the messages of Jesus and John were similar. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And and John was dead by this time. He had been beheaded by Herod Antipas, highly regarded by the people. They saw him as a prophet. Apparently, some thought maybe, just maybe, Jesus is a resurrected John. That's what Herod thought, which is why Jesus um, steered clear of him. Of course, we know Jesus wasn't John. Couldn't be. They were contemporaries, actually cousins. John um, had baptized Jesus in the Jordan sometime before. We'll come back to that one. John was the one sent to prepare the way of the Lord. He was the forerunner to prepare the way for the Messiah. So, John the Baptist, good good guess, wrong answer. Well. Some say you're Elijah. Why would they say that? Because Malachi chapter 4 says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. This was rightly seen as a messianic uh, prophecy. Elijah would come to announce the, the Messiah's arrival. I mean, even today, Orthodox Jews leave an empty chair at their Passover celebrations waiting for Elijah. Maybe he'll show up. We'll have a seat for him. Maybe he's Elijah. Uh, good guess. Wrong hand answer. Still others, interestingly, said maybe he's Jeremiah. Jeremiah, why would they say that? Well, first, Jeremiah was a, seen as a prophet of gloom, <laughs> and Jesus didn't have a lot of positive things to say about the future of Israel and the religious establishment. Maybe he's a resurrected Jeremiah. Not only that, there was there was a teaching within Judaism that came from the apocryphal book called Second Maccabees. That's one of those Apocryphal works written in the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. And uh, this second Maccabees uh, said that Jeremiah had taken the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense right before Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians uh, showed up and he hid them. The legend went on to say that Jeremiah would return them right before the coming of the Messiah. Uh, Maybe at any moment, Jesus would produce the ark and the altar, and the Messiah would come. Maybe he's Jeremiah. Good guess, wrong answer. Finally, there were others who didn't try to identify uh, which prophet he was. They just thought Jesus might be one of the prophets preparing the way for the Messiah. Don't miss it. This is what I want you to notice. Every one of those responses of the people was positive. <laughs> they weren't saying bad things about Jesus. Sure, there were some people like the Pharisees accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan. But that's not what most were saying. Jesus, you're, you're obviously a good guy, a godly man, a prophet, a man sent by God. We think you're okay, not unlike today. Jesus is cool, not so sure about this Son of God thing. He's obviously the dominant figure of all history. Notice also most of these guesses had to do with someone sent to announce the Messiah. In other words, they saw Jesus as right next to the Christ, a a forerunner, but, but not quite the Messiah. I mean... We like him, keep the miracles uh, coming, keep up the good work, we like the healings, we, we like especially the food, but you don't quite fit the Messianic profile. You see, there was a major problem. They were looking for a political leader to overthrow Roman oppression and lead them to their rightful place of glorious victory. <laughs> Jesus wasn't that guy, I mean, come on. He was just a Galilean peasant. I mean, can any good thing come out of Galilee? And he, he didn't appear to be gathering an army. I mean, his followers were former fishermen and tax collectors and lepers and sinners and prostitutes. I mean, we we're impressed with him, but he's not the Messiah. And that assessment has been the conclusion of many people through the centuries as they have Dismiss Jesus. So they might not call him demon-possessed. They might not call him a fraud, but they dismiss him nonetheless. They might even say good things about him. He's a good man. He's a good example, a man without equal. He might even have been a prophet. I mean, think think about Pilate. I find no guilt in this man. Great. That's positive. He's not such a bad guy. Lots of people through the centuries, maybe even you, have said okay things about Jesus. The French philosopher, uh, Diderot, referred to him as, quote, the unsurpassed. The German rationalist, Strauss, saw him as, quote, the highest model of religion. Uh, Descartes said that he is the, quote, guide to humanity. The French atheist, Renan, um, referred to him as the greatest among the sons of men. And my personal favorite, Martineau, saw him as, quote, the flower of humanity. What does that mean? I have no idea. But I want you to notice that all of those answers attribute some goodness to him. After all, you have to do something with Jesus. And so today, people may be favorably disposed, but they dismiss him. They might see him as a historical figure. I believe what I... I mean, you can't dismiss him. I mean, I believe what I've read about him in the history books. I I believe what I've heard about him in my philosophy of religion classes... You might see him, you might see him as a moral example. I mean, he did lots of good things. In fact, most people don't even have a problem. Listen, most people don't even have a problem with us being here today. I mean, if that's what we want to do. If you want to take an hour or so on uh, one of your two days off each weekend together with a bunch of other people, that's fine. Go right ahead. Our religion has been somewhat harmless and inconsequential to them, at least to this point. And so they dismiss him. You may even be here this morning with warm and fuzzy feelings about Jesus. I mean, you like the church. I mean, it's okay. You like gathering with church people. They're usually okay. You find some benefit, some relational benefit in showing up. I want to say to you that all of those thoughts about Jesus, as positive as they may be, woefully miss the mark. In fact, I would suggest saying positive things about Jesus, but coming short of what the Bible says about Jesus is dreadfully and eternally mistaken. Like the Jewish author said, either either accept Him or reject Him. There is no safe middle ground. You cannot waver. You cannot make up your own ideas. He is either who he claimed to be or a deranged wannabe religious figure with delusions of grandeur or worse. I agree, you see, with C.S. Lewis, who once wrote A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man uh, uh, was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. You, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. There is no safe middle ground. I agree. So do the Jews. That's why they put him to death. Because of who he claimed to be. They, they did not ultimately kill him because of his miracles. Not even because of his authoritative teaching, but because of his claim to be the Son of God. And if he is, you've got to do something with Jesus. We've been in a study of First John for some time now. This morning we arrive at a clear declaration of who Jesus is and what He came to do. And I want to say to you this morning there can be no wavering. No more fence sitting. You must make a choice. Look at it with me. It's in First John chapter five, the last chapter of the book, verses six to 12. He, John had just written in, in verse five, we looked at it last week, "Who is the one that overcomes the world, but he who uh, believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Right answer. He continues. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And so, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The the one who does not believe God has made him, that is God, a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So important is believing the testimony about Jesus that such belief, such trust results in eternal life. And to deny the testimony, and you can deny it by saying he was a good man. To deny the testimony about Jesus is not to have eternal life. You must do something with him. There is no safe middle ground. When you are asked, who do you say Jesus is, your answer is of eternal consequence. The word testimony or testify is used some 10 times in these verses. The word is maturias, maturia or martureo, which means to testify, means to, to witness or to be a witness or testimony. Interestingly, it's the word from which we get our word, remember, marturia, it's the word from which we get our word, martyr. You see, when many in the early church testified about Jesus or were his witnesses, it cost them their lives. I want to say to you this morning, if you are wavering, I I want to give you the fine print. There is a cost for following Jesus. They gave their lives because belief in Jesus is more, is more important than life itself. So today, naming the name of Jesus, maybe not in this country, it's coming, but maybe not in this country, naming the name of Jesus is not without cost. John had just said in verses 1 and 5, Jesus is the Christ, He is the Son of God. Now he goes on to give testimony in the sense of proof as to the person and work of Christ. You see, as we've seen through this book, the secessionists were in some way denying that Jesus was the Christ, denying that He was the Son of God, denying that He had come in the flesh, and perhaps were denying His work. So John has said clearly throughout the letter, we've heard it over and over, you must believe, you must confess rightly about Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. You can't just be impressed with this guy. You can't just say he was a good moral teacher. You can't even say he, he changed the world. I mean, every time you write a, the, the, a date on the calendar, you were acknowledging Jesus. Everything is reckoned by his birth, B.C. and A.D., He's the Christ. He is the Son of God. How do we know? He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. In fact, His own the religious leaders put Him to death. How how do we know that what John is saying about Jesus is true? He tells us in these verses with his testimony about Jesus, and he gives us consequences for believing or disbelieving. That forms our outline, the testimony, and then the results of believing or disbelieving. John gives solid Testimony concerning Jesus in verses 6 to 9. Now, let me just stop right here and say, listen, and I I just preached this about an hour ago. And I got to this point, and I realized about 15, 10 minutes into this point, I mean, the lights were out. As we were reading this particular text, you're probably going, what in the world does this say? Good question. We're going to try and figure it out together. So stay with me. There are three witnesses that John gives, likely because in Deuteronomy chapter 19, the law required something to be established as a fact in the presence of two or three witnesses. So John gives us three. He starts with this very notoriously difficult verse in verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. What in the world does that mean? Through the centuries, there have been many different interpretations, dozens and dozens actually. Jesus came by water and by blood. Some have suggested that these two refer to uh, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Others have suggested they refer to Jesus' death when he was pierced. This is in John chapter 19, when he was pierced with a spear and water and blood came out. Perhaps. Most, however, today, in fact, everyone today agrees that they refer to the beginning and to the end of Jesus' ministry, namely his baptism. He came through baptism into his ministry, and it ended at his crucifixion when he shed his blood for sinners. Jesus Christ came through water and uh, through blood. Well, wh- why does he say that? What is John's point? This is confusing. Remember, in some way, he was battling false teachers who were denying the deity of Jesus, that he was the anointed one, that he was the Christ, that he was the Son of God. So John points to the beginning of his ministry when he was baptized. Why does he do that? Do you remember what happened when John baptized Jesus? It's in Matthew chapter 3. The Spirit of God was seen descending upon him in the form of a dove, and the voice of the Father was heard from heaven to say what? This is my beloved Son. That's what it means. With whom I am well pleased. So he came through water at his baptism as he entered into his public ministry and his identity was proclaimed. John the Baptist was even told the one upon the one that you see upon whom the Spirit comes and remains. That's the one. That's why John could say when he saw Jesus walking by later, "Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." It's incredibly important. But he didn't just come by water, he also came by blood. Everyone agrees, even through the centuries, uh, this refers to Jesus' death. When he died on the cross, shedding his blood, he became the atonement for our sins. We could talk about lots of verses, I think we understand that his shedding of blood was for the remission of our sins. But why is that important here? Because there, there were false teachers denying the vicarious death, the substitutionary death of Jesus. As the Christ. Do you remember, we've mentioned through our study in the book of 1 John, this guy named Serenthus. Remember, there was the one time that John went into the bathhouse in Ephesus, and he found out that Serenthus was inside, and he fled out of the bathhouse saying, flee for your lives, lest the bathhouse fall on this heretic, Serenthus. He was the guy who said that Jesus was just a man. I find that Interesting. That Jesus was just a man upon whom the Spirit descended at His baptism, but left Him before the crucifixion. John is likely dealing with that heresy which says Jesus was just a man while He walked on the earth, certainly filled by the Holy Spirit. Does that sound familiar? Do you see why through the, uh, the course of study through the book of 1 John, where I have decried those who say that Jesus was just a man, John says otherwise. John is declaring Jesus was fully the divine Son of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, from His baptism, contrary to Serenthus, through His death. He was the Christ, the Son of God. He was not just a mere man. His baptism and His death prove it because He was raised from the dead. Which leads to the third testimony, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Notice the end of verse 6. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. It reminds us of the farewell discourse. Jesus told his disciples when he left that the Father and he, the Son, would send another advocate, another helper to be with them, the Spirit of truth. That is the Holy Spirit. Uh, he would send them, he would not lead them as orphans. In fact, he said in John 15, this is in the middle of that farewell discourse, John 14 to 16, critically important. When the helper comes, who, uh, whom I will send you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify, give witness, that's the same word. He will testify about me. Later in John 16, speaking of the Spirit, we read, he will, Jesus is still speaking, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So the Spirit's primary responsibility, the, Holy, the reason the Holy Spirit has been given to us, His primary responsibility is to testify about Jesus and glorify Him. So, verses 7 and 8 of our text, where there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the, and, and the three are in agreement. They, they are testifying about who Jesus is and what He came to do. Now, here's a, a, a question. How does the Spirit testify about Jesus? Well, to the disciples, He reminded them of all that the, the, the Jesus said so that they could write the biblical record. But what about us? How does the Spirit testify to us? How does the Spirit of God testify the truth about Jesus to us? In a number of ways. But three, primarily. Certainly, through the Spirit-inspired record that we have concerning Jesus called the Word of God. And you have the ability by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to understand the Word of God, even when it talks about water and blood. We can figure it out. In John chapter 5, Jesus gives four witnesses which testify to who he was. He speaks of John the Baptist. He speaks of his works, his miraculous works. He speaks of the Father, and he speaks of the Word of God. You search. This is that famous passage where he says, you search the Scripture because in them you think that you have eternal life. It is these that testify, same word, these that testify of me. And the Holy Spirit does that through the Word of God. Second, the Spirit abides in us. Don't, don't, don't be bored with that. Don't let that just pass by you. John chapter 14, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever, that is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides in you and will be with you. Do you understand? The Spirit testifies to the reality of Jesus Christ because He, if you believe in Jesus, is within you. You don't have to make this stuff up. Third, the Spirit guides us to all truth, John 16. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. So the Spirit's work is to testify to us. And these are three primary ways. There are more. He causes us to be born again. We looked at that last week. He he testifies to us about Jesus. He indwells the believer. He guides us to all truth so that we can understand the Spirit-inspired Word, as spirit, Spirit-indwelt believers. We can actually know truth, namely, ultimately, the truth about Jesus. Listen, every once in a while you will hear people say something like this. And I'll just be honest, I used to kind of poo-poo it a little bit. But sometimes you'll hear people say something like this, I know that I know. It's true. You know that you know because of the Spirit of God who lives in you. He testifies to the truth of Jesus. There is a subjective truth of the Holy Spirit living within. These three are in agreement about Jesus meeting the demands of Deuteronomy, establishing the fact in the face of three witnesses. And so, verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God. He is implying that all three of these, He's the one that sent the Son. He's the one that spoke of the Son at His baptism. He's the one that put His Son to death and raised Him from the dead. We're talking water and blood. This is, the, this is a testimony ultimately of the Father. And, this, and the testimony of the Father is greater. Greater concerning his son. If you believe testimony in a courthouse, you believe the testimony of men, how much more, he goes from the lesser to the greater, how much more should you believe the testimony about the father regarding the son? I'll come back to that. So where does this leave us? Our second point and actually our conclusion. To believe or disbelieve the testimony of the father about the son. Again, I want to say to you, listen carefully. You you cannot just be impressed with Jesus. You can't. We're going to get, when you look in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say to people who did lots of wonderful works in Jesus' name, depart from me, I never knew you. You can't just be impressed with Jesus. You can't even just do churchy stuff. You can't say that He's the most dominant figure in history. You cannot say lots of good things about Jesus. You must believe the testimony about the Son. Verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God, that is who trusts in Jesus, uh, who He is and what He has done through His ministry, through His life, through the cross, has this testimony in Himself. What that means is simply this. When you believe the testimony, it becomes your testimony. You actually believe this truth about Jesus. But the one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Made who a liar? God. John has used this challenging word not to be unkind, um, but he's used it throughout the letter. I'm not going to review all of them this morning. But to not believe God's testimony about His Son, you are calling God a liar. And I want to say to you very gently, you do not want to do that. People who have heard the gospel, that's the testimony concerning the Son from the Father, who have heard the gospel and deny it, are calling God a liar. John Stott says uh, that... uh, this is not a person to be pitied. but Rather, this is a sin to be deplored, abhorred. You, you don't want to hear the truth about Jesus and then say, I don't believe it. You're saying, God, you're a liar. What is God's testimony about the Son? God has given us eternal life, and this life is found in His Son. And the implication is it's found in His Son alone. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father before He goes to the cross, and He says, this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. The only way to know the Father is through the work of the Son. Earlier in the very beginning of that farewell discourse, John chapter 14, we all know it. We've heard it over and over and again. Jesus Himself said, this is where you've either got to believe in Him or write him off as a raving lunatic when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And when Peter preached the second sermon of the Christian church in Acts chapter 4, he says, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There's only one, and his name is Jesus. John sums it up in verse 12. He who has the Son That is, the one who believes the truth about the Son, trusting Jesus for salvation, this one and this one alone, has life. That means eternal life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. When we talk about eternal life, I want you to understand we're not just talking about endless duration. Every person who has ever been born will live eternally. Every person in this room will live eternally. The question is not, will you live eternally? The question is not quantity. The question is quality. Quality. Where will you live? When we speak of eternal life, when the Scripture speaks of eternal life, it speaks of abundant life. It speaks of a joy-filled life, knowing God through the Son. So, when you say you believe in Jesus, I'm simply going to ask you, which one? Which one? Are you simply impressed with him? Do you know the Jesus of the history books? Or do you know the Jesus of the Bible? Do you believe the testimony of the Father about the Son? This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He is the only way to the Father.